you can flip to uh, Romans 2 if you have a Bible. I, I really, if you do have a Bible, definitely try and follow along today because there's a lot to cover. And um, again, Romans is very meaty, so I'm going to try to to help you know help us sort through it because there's there's just a lot there. So Romans 2, and we're going to talk about the judgment of God. I'm going to read the text and then we'll pray. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, whoever you are, who judges. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge do the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who commit such things. Do you think, O man, who judges those who do such things and who does the same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the goodness or the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your hardness and impenitent heart, you are storing up treasures of wrath against yourself on the day of wrath when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. And he will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality will be eternal life. But to those who are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, will be tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace will be to every man who does good work, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For there is no partiality with God. As many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. As many as have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, while their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them in the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we, we come now to the Word, the Word that your Holy Spirit sovereignly orchestrated and written in order uh, to know you, to serve you, to worship you. We thank you that he has done this. We give thanks this day that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the scriptures. Help us examine our hearts so that we may see them the way that you do. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so <clears throat> given the content of, what, uh, of chapter 1 and, and what we covered last week, and specifically the indictment of all mankind and their penchant for lusting after autonomous living, um, we could, reading that, fall into despair because the Apostle Paul didn't exactly land the plane on the tarmac of good news. Uh, we're just sort of left hanging. Everyone's a sinner. Yay. Um, Paul has no doubt gone straight for the jugular, and he shows no signs of letting up either. The fact is, autonomy, the self-law, is a root of all lusts. It is the root of all lusts. And thus, the de facto starting point of all mankind. All mankind apart from Christ, that is. So given the strong indictment that we received from chapter 1, which was aimed at primarily at Gentiles in the pagan world, um, <laughs> a Jewish person hearing this, or just a moralist in general, may well feel proud at Paul's excoriating remarks. 
Um, sort of like the sibling, when, the, when, the, when one sibling gets in trouble, the other one's like, ha ha, good. Uh, sort of vindictive moralism. Don't do that, kids. So seeing himself as impervious to guilt, Paul gives his fair share of critique to the Jew, too. He's not just critiquing the pagans, he's also going to critique his kinsmen. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm, there's, there's debate on this passage, and I'm going to really, we're going to have some fun this morning. I mean, you may not think it, you might think it's torture, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> there's debate on whether or not Paul is describing a Jewish moralist here or a moralist in general. Um, either way, it applies. I, th- I think he's turning his attention to his fellow Jews, which he will bring up again in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But keep in mind the, the train of thought so far in the book of Romans. The covenant justice of God, what we call God's righteousness, displays God's faithfulness to his people, and that's in the King Jesus gospel. So usually when we look at the gospel, we think, oh, God did something great for us, so we don't have to go to hell and we can live forever. Okay, those are ramifications, but what the gospel does primarily is reveal something. It tells us something about God's faithfulness and his righteousness and his covenant commitment to his people. If you were a Jew in the first century during this time, your thinking in your mind is, what has God done? The Romans are ruling the place. The temple has not been refinished. God's Yahweh has not returned to Zion like the Old Testament tells us. What in the world is going on? And Paul says, I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus is here. And all that other stuff, this is what matters now. So God's righteousness reveals his saving justice, but it actually also reveals and discloses his wrath against wickedness as well. So you look at the cross and you think, this is great. He took my place for my sins. But you should also look at the cross and say, wait, that's God's wrath. That's that's how he feels against wickedness and sin. So Paul, he always reads um, history through the lens of Adam and Israel because it is this story that leads us to the fact that Jesus is the Lord. Reading history this way makes the gospel what it is. Um, It's not like God did this thing in the Old Testament and then he thought, well, you know, I'm just going to change my mind and do something different. No, this is one whole story and that's what Paul is going to explain. So what what exactly has happened with mankind in Adam? Well, we saw in the previous chapter, autonomy, rebellion, sin, and transgression. We know in the Old Testament that God chose Abraham and thus Israel to carry out what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And what was Adam and Eve supposed to do? Well, they were to be protectors. They were to be vice regents. They were to be custodians in the garden world. They were called with a task. And instead of picking up, up, up the shovel and going to work, they dropped the shovel, listened to the serpent, and next thing you know, they're naked and expelled from the garden. And God clothes them with animal skins. So not the way it was supposed to go. So what Paul claims here in chapter 2 is that Israel, like Adam and Eve, has failed in this calling. They had the same calling. They too dropped the ball. Israel for the sake of the world became Israel for the sake of Israel. Okay, we're going to come back to the church later, but church for the sake of the world has become in our day church for the sake of the church. And that's a problem. So God's covenant people are called to display the grace, the mercy, and justice of God, and not the injustice of man. 
All right. So that's why the whole mask thing is not a neutral issue. Okay. You don't just get to say, well, we'll just suck it up and deal with it. No, you don't get to do that. We are not called to display the injustice of man. We're called to display the justice of God. And that means something every single day and every decision you make at your job, your parenting, you name it, all of it matters. So the unbelieving Jews who put the Messiah to death, they were not covenant keeping people. They were breaking the covenant, but of course we know that they were breaking it in the name of the covenant, which was sin and unrighteousness. Uh, if you recall, the, um, the, the, you know, it's better that Jesus died for the nation than the whole nation perish. Like, in other words, like, if we don't shut him up, he's going to cause Rome to like, oppress us more. So it's better that he dies than we all die. Not knowing, well, yeah, it actually is better that he dies because that's how your sins are forgiven. And of course, they would be judged in AD 70 when Rome uh, leveled Jerusalem and killed millions. Now, remember that the letter to the church at Rome here, this is what we call Romans, navigates the relationship between Jews and Gentiles as they sort through what it means to be the people of God together. Now, no doubt this was a paradigm shift, and is, as is always the case, paradigms don't just turn on a dime, okay? Try getting people to believe that Jesus is Lord and has something to say about how we do things now. <laughs> You'll quickly find that you're going to want to pull your hair out. So there's, there's a lot of, in other words, there's a lot of navigational threats for a local church. Hypocrisy, sneering at one another, um, impatience with disparity and differences of, of maybe how we do things. They're not a sin, but, you know, they're, they're preferential things. Um, jealousy in a covenant community. Uh, selfishness. No, I'm not going to serve that person because they said this to me and I was too bitter to confront it. So I'm going to just go ahead and swallow that poison and be bitter for the next two weeks. And I will refuse to serve that person. Well, that'll tear a community apart in no time, by the way. So all of these things, there's all these navigational threats, even more so in a church with complex ethic um, ethnic or cultural concerns as well. I remember going to Africa the first time in 2009, sitting in a church service. The guy preached in French for like four hours. And all I could think of was, I heard Moses' name. I knew we were talking about Moses. Other, I don't know French. I could have probably hung with some Espanol, but not French. And, and I thought, this is crazy. Like the American church, you go over 30 minutes, everybody's looking at you like... When's he going to stop? Don't do that today, because I'm going to go over 30 minutes. <laughs> but there's cultural differences, and, and that's a complex thing to sort through. So the main issue here in this passage is hypocrisy in the church and the judgment of God. That's where Paul's driving this thing home. The pagan world is in Adam and thus worthy of wrath. That was chapter one. But what about the Jews? What about the chosen people of God? Are they automatically exempt from the judgment of God or are they too susceptible to the divine judgment? Don't, don't they have special standing and especially how bad things were in the pagan world? I mean, uh, Canaanites would, would, you know, do some pretty horrific things to children, to one another. Um, that's bad stuff, but what about the Jews? We're God's people. Don't we have this standing? And Paul says in my own paraphrase, uh, not so fast, bucko. <laughs> not so fast, buddy. 
you don't know. Presumption is where things go sideways. So let's look at our text. So there's a shift in who Paul addresses here in verse 1, and what tips us off is what he says here in verse 1 and in 17 where he specifically mentions the Jew. He says, therefore, that is, based on what was just said in the previous passage, you, the moralist, are without excuse, O man. If you have an NASB, they don't get this right. Um, O man is a very good translation. He's putting up this this fictitious person he's going to debate. You know, therefore, you are without excuse, O man, this person I'm going to critique, whoever you are. The man being this fictitious Jewish moralist interlocutor, his debate partner. So in other words, Paul says, don't be a hypocrite because guess what? Jews are just men too. The minute you think you're something special is the minute you forget that you're just a man. You're just a woman. You're just a child. You are a human being and you are flawed. I am flawed. We are flawed. So... What might this Jewish moralist be tempted to do with pagans who are coming into the covenant? Okay, that's the equivalent of um, someone being invited into our community that has some very crazy uh, lifestyle choices that we would say are not on par with Scripture. And they become a Christian, and there's a little rough around the edges, and they're sitting here, and how do we interact with that day to day. How do you deal with that? Well, we could look down upon them and say, look what you've done. You are a terrible person. I can't believe you would do that. Is that the type of moralist we want to be? Well, obviously not. We don't want to be a hypocrite. So what might the moralist be tempted to do with these pagans coming into the covenant now, these Gentiles? Obviously, judge and condemn them while committing the same sins. The Gentiles, we learn in chapter 1, verse 20, were without excuse. Now the Jews are without excuse as well. Why? Because the same sins are being committed too. They're guilty too. See, God's just judgment is in accordance to truth, which is objective and fixed. You don't get to mess with it. And this means that the judgment is always an equal opportunity situation. So verse 2, God's judgment is against the sin. Wherever sin is, God's judgment speaks to it. Anywhere, it doesn't matter. Look at the end of verse 16 there. Whether it's your secrets. Who among us would love to have our thoughts put on the TV for all to see? (laughs) See, Jesus has been established as the world's rightful Lord, which means he's also the world's rightful judge. But this cuts both ways, which means we better watch ourselves closely. In fact, do you think that you can escape the judgment of God? That somehow Jesus will give you a free pass, especially in verse 3 there, when you condemn yourself with the same sins. A delay in final judgment doesn't mean that God gives us permission to be hypocrites. It means that it ought to lead us repentance. God's Goodness, God's kindness, he says in verse 4, ought to do that in us. I mean, the fact that we as a nation are not yet smote with fire from heaven should probably stop. We should think, wow, God is good because we deserve it. We deserve Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0 based on injustice of abortion alone, let alone the rampant humanism that affects every other area of our lives. 
So being hard-hearted with, with and full of impenitence is a bank account that's saving up the wrath of God for the time when Jesus sorts it all out, rendering every man according to his deeds. Look at verse 5 and 6. So good deeds, verse 7, like seeking glory and honor and immortality leads us to the path of eternal life. Being a contentious man or a woman, refusing to obey truth and instead giving oneself over to unrighteousness or indignation and wrath, all that ever leads to, because remember, you reap what you sow, is tribulation in your life, anguish in your life. How many of you are stricken by anxiety? Well, there's probably something going on there. Could be physiological, could be mental, could be spiritual, or probably all three to some degree. So it doesn't matter if you're a card-carrying Jew or a Gentile, verse 8 and 9. So God's wrath is an equal opportunity judgment, but so is His glory, so is His honor, so is His peace, which if pursued in Christ is given in Christ, verse 10. The reason is because God shows no partiality. God does not take bribes, verse 11. In other words, there are no backdoor deals in the kingdom, nor does our heavenly, the heavenly accountant, whomever he or she is, cook the books. We're going to make this guy look better because it's bad. So we're just going to erase some things here in the line item and make it look better. God doesn't do that. No way. See, in keeping with his comparison between the Jew and the Gentile, it doesn't matter ultimately who can say that Abraham is their father or who can say that they have Moses. Sin is sin is sin and judgment is the same. Verse 12. And the issue here, by the way, the issue here isn't racial or ethnic. The issue is ethical. It's covenantal. Hearers and hearers only, in verse 13, um, can't possibly be justified or declared in the right. Only doers who prove that it is sunk deep down in the heart can be justified, verse 13 there. And why would this be the case? Because Gentiles don't by nature have the covenant law, but because... They are made in the image of God, too. And they, too, are in Adam, and thus they do, as image bearers, obey the contents of the law. Verse 14. This is because the work of the law is on their hearts, as God grants all his image bearers a conscience, which is tied to morality and justice. There in verse 15. So Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, they still have the work of the law of Moses because the law of God transcends the economy of Moses. Okay? Don't think that Cain and Abel didn't know what was going on long before Moses came. Don't, don't think that they didn't have, have some sort of direct revelation um, uh, from even Adam and Eve. Could you imagine telling that story to your kids? Yeah, I was dirt and then I was here. And then... God killed me and took my rib and made this woman over here who ultimately is the reason we're in the predicament we're in. But that would be Adam being wrong because it's his fault too. He's to take responsibility. It's interesting. Adam had to sacrifice something first to have his wife. He sacrificed his, an organ practically, his, one of his ribs. And that sacrifice is what should have happened with the serpent, but he didn't. And here we are. So all of, the, all of the law of God transcends the economy of Moses. So indeed, all men in Adam, okay, if you're a human being, you're in Adam, 
and you have conflicting thoughts, he says in verse 16, that accuse us or excuse us. And then, and given the justice of God in Christ, even our thoughts, even our thoughts will be laid before him. Uh, by the way, look at verse 16. He says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. There's a clear connection between the good news of Christ and what God will do in judging the secrets, our secrets. All right, so that's, that's the text. Let's try to, let's try to uh, apply it. Let's try to understand it. There are two things, two textual matters that we're going to have to sort out, and they do tie together as you see. So make sure you have your Bible open because I want you to see it right in your lap too because it's important. The first has to do with verse 14 and the Greek language there. Now, I have to just have to warn you up front, okay? I was telling Aaron this too. I chased this thing down the rabbit hole this week, and as a result, uh, my view on this verse has changed a bit. Um, now, obviously, I'm a man. I'm just a man, and like you, uh, tend to be rather ignorant of the places of which I'm in error. Because <laughs> if we knew where we're wrong, we wouldn't be wrong, right? Right. So, I submit this to you in humility. Uh, we can argue it out over our wonderful lunch later if you want. So, the Greek of verse 14, the language, has been rather a contentious debate in the scholarly world. Men like John Calvin and others like him believe that Paul is saying in verse 14 that Gentiles, quote-unquote, by nature, do the things contained in the law, the word for the, the word by nature, it's actually just one word, modifying their doing of the law. So think of it like this in, in English or any language, um, you have to decide in the Greek which words modify which phrases around them. Okay? And when this particular word is plugged into the middle of the sentence, it is, frankly, somewhat muddled. What does by nature modify? What is he talking about? Okay, the common interpretation here is connected to the idea of natural law. And proponents of this view are simply saying that the Gentiles, remember these non-covenantal, non-Mosaic people, non-Jewish people, by nature do the law, the natural law. Uh, they have the natural law to follow, even though they don't have Moses. Okay. That's the common view, and I'm here to tell you, I think that's wrong. And maybe next week you can prove me wrong. I don't know. This is where I'm at today. <laughs> A very literal translation of this verse might be this. For when nations not having the law or the Torah, by nature do the things of the Torah. I don't think he's talking about two different laws, by the way. That's, that's a very Aristotelian way of thinking about it. Aristotle being one of the premier thinkers of natural law. Um, he's not comparing natural law versus Mosaic law here. He's talking about Mosaic law the whole way through. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in commentaries because I frankly don't have a lot of time to do that. But this week I decided to punish myself and chase down tons of footnotes. And, and it led me to this place and this author. And, and uh, it was sort of that um, moment of what have I done to myself? And when you chase down footnotes, by the way, you end up in some very strange places. The point of what Paul says, and I believe 
that it is correct given the context of what comes before and then what's going to come after this verse is this. Gentiles by nature or by default, they don't by origin possess the Torah, the law of God. And this is because they're outside of the covenant, which is what Paul will explore in the next section we'll get to next week. What I believe Paul is describing here are Gentile Christians who obediently fulfill the law, the Torah. They do so because the Spirit of God lives in them and enables them to do so. As one scholar had said, don't read the passage with this question in your head. Well, am I saved by, do, by what I believe or what I do? Because I always thought it was just by what I believe. But now Paul says, you're not justified if you don't do the works of the law. Don't come to this passage with that question. Instead, ask, well, how did Israel to be, how did they come to be like the Gentiles where Paul has to condemn them too? Well, murdering the Messiah would be a key qualifying thing there. And also ask this question, well, how is God going to get Israel and the Gentiles out of this huge mess of being sinners in need of the grace of God? How is he going to do that? So let me, let me state this another way to try and win you to my position. Paul is not speaking of a natural law that is inscribed in the hearts of non-Jewish people. He is talking about some Gentiles, those who are in Christ, who don't have access to the law as something that was given to them you know, by birth or intrinsic to their, their ancestry or their ethnic ident identity. And yet, even, that, even though that's the case, they too have the work of the law via the Holy Spirit in them inscribed on their hearts. The passage, I believe, the passage that follows further proves the point because true covenant faithfulness, by the way, is not in church membership or external things like circumcision. He says, a circumcised heart is what makes one an inward Jew, someone who is a true covenant member. In other words, the, the point Paul drives home, not least the point that he's going to revisit over and over again throughout this letter, is that true obedience, don't miss this, true obedience to the law can only be accomplished from something or rather someone who comes to us from beyond the letter of the law, that being the work of the Spirit, dispensed to us from the Father and the Son via the gospel message. That's his point. How in the world can you do the law if the Jews can't do the law and they had the law? That's the question. How do you do it? The Spirit of God. That's the answer. Now this ties to another problem, and I already mentioned it. According to verse 13, if you look there, hearers of the law are not justified before God, but doers of the law are justified. <laughs> so back in verse 6, God's judgment of man is based on deeds. Well, wait a minute. Well, are we saved by deeds now? Are good things we do? What in the world is going on? Well, part of the, part of the Pauline argument here is that Gentile Christians live in accordance with the indwelling Holy Spirit. They, they live in, with the indwelling Holy Spirit. They are deeply and profoundly aware of two things. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you're, 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 you're aware of two things. One, you know that you are right with God by faith alone. Who here disputes that? It's by grace. You're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, right? 2, 8, 9. You know 
that your works aren't good enough. You know you need Jesus Christ. You know you are declared right in the courtroom of God by faith and faith alone. That's how you get right with God. But two, you also know that you are fulfilling the law of God and obedience to the law happens because the Spirit writes it on our hearts. So it's not as though the bottom shelf issue in the theological pantry here is reduced down to Jew versus Gentile. That's what it was always about in their mind. But Paul says, no, that's actually not, that's not it. I know, church at Rome, that you have Jews and Gentiles coming together and there are some wonky stories and you've all lived way different lives and now you're here and you profess Christ and I know you're dealing with those ethnic issues like four-hour sermons in French. I know you're dealing with that, but let me tell you something. The issue here is not that. The issue is the fulfillment of the law in light of Christ's death and resurrection. See, in Paul's view, when you are in Christ, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, okay, several things are taking place. First, you are only in Christ because the Spirit is in you. That's it. You are only in Christ because the Spirit is in you. Paul's not ignoring the doctrine of regeneration here. He's going to tease that out later, and I think he's anticipating it. Second, regarding the fulfillment of the law, something the Jews held fast to. You have to do Torah. You have to. Regarding that, this can only come about for both Jew and Gentile when we categorically redefine who it is the people of God really are. You can't just flatten this and say, well, if you don't do enough good works, this is Islam, by the way, and many other cults. If you do enough good things and you put it on the scale, and by God's grace, or by your works, as it were, hopefully your works outweigh your bad, and this is this cosmic scale of yin and yang and doing the right thing. If, if that's your view of Christianity, you need to blow that up. That's right. So the people of God are no longer defined by circumcision practices or temple ceremonies or land boundaries in Israel, etc. and so on. Thank the Lord we don't have to take a goat right here. I don't know, if, Seth, if you even have a goat, but thankfully we don't have to put that on the altar and call that worship. No, we could just put ourselves on the altar and call it worship. But the people of God are people of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He's Israel's Lord. He's the resurrected King of the world. And that is how we answer the works question. So the issue can't be whether or not you attend synagogue and you hear the Torah. Right? That was important for a first century Jew. You go to the synagogue. If you can't get to the temple, you go to the synagogue in your city and you hear the Torah. It's read aloud and... Hear, O Israel, right? This, this idea of hearing is important. But the issue isn't just hearing. The issue is doing of the Torah. But the only possible way to actually do the law, to fulfill the Torah, is to have the Spirit of God in the heart driving us towards righteousness. See, Paul's point is that the Gentile Christians, guess what? They accomplish that same task that you're trying to accomplish the very same way. To, to root out the hypocrisy in a community then, Paul says that the God of justice will not use Jewish law to condemn 
Gentile sinners, but he will use it to condemn Jewish sinners. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. Children, if you're, you're here, you're baptized into the covenant, to whom much is given, much is required. You have been given the grace of God. You have been taught the statutes of his word. You've been given a lot. So nothing short of all-out obedience to God will suffice. See, the issue, some might, someone, someone might say, well, you know, but both, both of us are sinners. Uh, so Jews and Gentiles, well, well now what? We're not, we're not really talking about two different laws here, right? So what gives? Well, precisely. It's not, well, the Jews had Moses and the Gentiles have natural law. It's not that at all. It's not what he's saying here. Um, we're talking about people who think there are multiple ways to escape the judgment of God. We're talking about rooting out this ethnic superiority, the rooting out of hypocrisy in the church, the rooting out of special pleading. Oh, but, oh, but I, oh, but that person was mean to me. Oh, but they said something I didn't like, as if that justifies anything. So two things are hammered home in this passage. One, God shows no partiality. So don't go thinking that your special covenantal standing gives you a free pass. That includes you, baptized church. Uh, no, Jews and Gentiles, they both stand before the throne of Christ, and even the secrets of men are going to be judged. Two, Torah was always meant to be done, not just heard. That's nothing new. Nothing new. The law was always meant to be done, not just heard. The difference is you can't do it unless God enables you to do it. So then in the gospel, we get the verdict, as we said last time, the verdict of the future judgment, the final judgment. We get that verdict today. And Paul's not trying to implement another legalism, right? You have to do the law or you won't be saved. It's much more nuanced than this. Rather, this future justification that we get is in reference to Gentile Christians who actually fulfill the law by their lives in the Holy Spirit, which means the work that they do, the seeking, notice the word seeking here several times, that's the working out of Christ, excuse me, the working out of what Christ has worked in. Okay, he says that in Philippians, elsewhere, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your job is to work out the very thing Christ has worked inside of you. See, remember this, in Christ, the future has invaded the present. The Christian Gentile behavior coincides with this present verdict of not guilty and now righteous that the gospel affords you. Your life is built on the fact that you went into the courtroom, God declared you not guilty. He declared you now righteous. You've been absolved in Christ. Your life reflects that now, or it should. So that verdict that we have in Christ today will be the same verdict that we receive in the future. So this isn't Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I can see the YouTube commenter now this week on this sermon. Okay, I can see it. Oh, you know, the great defender of justification by faith alone. Well, clearly he was influenced by James and now... He's talking about being a doer of the law in order to be declared right with God. You know, so Pastor Jason is teaching works-based salvation. He's a heretic and everyone should ignore him. I can see it. 
this reductionistic one-dimensional thinking is erroneous and frankly stupid. What I have already said dismisses this, so I'm not going to repeat myself again. But there are two things I want to help you apply, and then we'll, as we wrap this up. One, there is no partiality in God, which means divided allegiances and hypocrisy within the church cannot stand. That's the logic. There's no partiality with God, so don't you dare have it here. Don't play favorites. Don't think of someone as more important than the other person because you have a favorable opinion of them and a not-so-favorable opinion of the other person, so you're going to be partial towards them. None of that happens in the Christian church. None of that should happen in the Christian church. See, the Old Testament repeatedly affirms that God shows no partiality, and because of this, we aren't to do that either. Whether it is relationships within our community or the magistrate's role in carrying out justice, the principle of no neutrality, excuse me, no partiality stands strong for a reason. God is the judge and he is just. His judgments are perfect, which means we must align ourselves with them all of the time. See, there's always a temptation. Perhaps you can relate. There's always a temptation to be double-minded or to give your team a pass or to dish out self-righteous judgment towards others see in the latter category there we can either judge with righteous judgment and the matter is settled or we can judge self-righteously jockeying for position in order to put others down i mean don't you feel great when you criticize and put other people down who among us doesn't feel awesome afterwards you might think you feel awesome and you might think you're doing something noble but you're actually revealing you're a hypocrite too see in christ none of this can happen in order for the church to reclaim her role that is like jesus was for israel the church is to be for the world by the way not as a savior but a problem solving um, servant as it were we must forego the hypocrisy of self-righteousness. Do you condemn pornography while watching it? Do you pretend to be a wise dispenser of virtue online while actually being a purveyor of vice behind closed doors? I'm going to pick on social media for a second. See, hip hypocrisy is more than simply pretending. It's self-deception, believing that you have way more moral capital in your life than you actually have. So are you a hypocrite? Do you say that you are pro-family? I'm, I'm pro-family, but you refuse to carve out time for your actual family who's right in front of you each day. Do you claim to be a theonomist who affirms the need for the tithe, but you don't actually tithe? The list is, of course, endless. Do, do you want to escape the judgment of God? Then soberly assess yourselves, soberly judge yourselves. Two, and this is where we'll wrap it up. Doing the law can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit within us, but this doesn't mean that we get to slip into neutral. We have this tremendous responsibility, and that's what Paul is getting at. The key word in verses 5 through 11 has to do with what it is we are Seeking. Did you notice the word there? Seeking. What is it that we are seeking? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his justice? 
Are we in hot pursuit of holiness every day, putting to death the deeds of the body? And are, are we in pursuit of grace and mercy and justice towards one another? Or do we, in an effort not to be a hypocrite, deaden ourselves with addictions to social media, to other things, where we get to put out a vision of ourselves that is more likable or perhaps more suitable so that we can, you know, sort of uh, project on the world a reality that we just can't fulfill. It's, cash we, it's a check we can't cash. See, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is in us, and if righteousness isn't happening, well, then perhaps something's wrong with him. Oh, you tell me the Spirit is in me, but I'm still struggling with depression. I'm still struggling with all of these things. So clearly the Spirit is just, is he sleeping? No. Here's the thing. The Spirit is in you, so get to work. The Spirit is in you, get to work. Work out what Christ has worked in. Don't slip into neutral. Let the clutch out and drive that thing. Paul says that Jews can't hide from the judgment of God by invoking their Jewishness. The same goes for you. You can't hide from the judgment of God by relying on outward appearances, that's hypocrisy, and covering your secrets. Not if you want to live before the face of God. In the gospel, we have the forgiveness that we need so we can give it to others. We have the justice we need to be just. We have the grace we need to be gracious towards those in our community. In Christ, our lives are on full display as God sees every moment of every second. And on top of seeing it, knowing what you're thinking every single day, he sees it from every single perspective. He, he's hearing what I'm saying right now from all of your perspectives and the window's perspective, the fan's perspective the floor. He sees it all. The judgment of God is pure, it is holy, and it is true. And if you want to live righteously, friends, run to Christ and rest in Him. Don't run away and hide behind your keyboard. Don't run away and hide. Run to Him. There is no place on earth where you can escape Him. And that should terrify us and it should comfort us. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us. You've been good, ultimately, in the giving of your Son. And we rejoice in his provision. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you saw what was before you and yet considered it joy. Considered it joy for the reclamation of the earth to reclaim men, women, and children for your glory so that we could serve you with gratitude and, and not with a, a, a spurious forgetfulness. But we could serve you each day in every moment. Father, you are the just judge. And that does bother us. But it bothers us in a way that it probably should. It bothers us into humility. It bothers us into uh, to being humble and, and gracious. So with gratitude, we thank you for what you've done. And we give you the praise this day. And as we take of this agape meal, we take communion together. May you be glorified and may we serve you in Christ's name I pray. Amen.